Our second reading of God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mesiel Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mesiel, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And, as you see fit, so deal with your servants." So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. At the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men... God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mesiel, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. 
This is the word of the Lord. When the average person thinks about the book of the prophet Daniel, what they think about is this is a book of futuristic prophecy. And they are not wrong. That is a major theme of the book of Daniel. Uh, Now, it's futuristic prophecy from the point of view of the 6th century when the book was written. It is very definitely futuristic prophecy from the point of view of Daniel, but almost all of it, if not all of it, has to do with how history is going to play out till the coming age comes with the coming of the promised Son of Man, the coming of Jesus the Messiah. So most of the futuristic prophecy of Daniel uh, has been fulfilled, and it's effectively in our past, but it is, from the point of view of the 6th century, a book of futuristic prophecy. That is one of its main themes, and in many ways it is one of the most Christ-centered books in all the Old Testament, because it aims at the great moment when all the promises that God has been making about the seed of the woman are going to come to pass, and Jesus of Nazareth will walk among us. But that is not the only theme of the book of Daniel, nor is it the only major theme of the book of Daniel. The other truly major theme of this book is uh, how do you live when you're in diaspora? Now you may ask yourself the question, what's a diaspora and why would I be in it? The word diaspora is a, it's a Greek word, and it shows up originally in the uh, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the first translation ever made into Greek. Uh, it translates a Hebrew word, which means the same thing as it means. It means when you are scattered, when you are scattered into the nations. As you know, God promised his people, I will give you a holy land. I will give you a place where you can come and worship me and the covenant, the land will be all about it. Um, The the, the temple of God will be in the land. The the worship of God will be the focus of the land. You will be protected from your enemies. You will be in a holy land. Everything in the promised land will, will testify to me. Well, that just broke. In the first couple verses of the book of Daniel, you have the beginning of the exile, the carrying away of God's people from the Holy Land. And the significance of being run out of a place like the Holy Land and being scattered among all the pagans really cannot be overemphasized. They have been given by God the grace of being in a place that was God-centered and God-focused and covenant-focused, and now is the beginning of them being scattered out. So they're going to live with the person next door being a pagan, and the person across the street being a pagan, and the person on the other side also being a pagan, and in fact there will be more likely more pagans in town than believers, and they're going to dwell among them. Verse 1 through 4 is the beginning of the exile. It's the beginning of the diaspora. 
Daniel and his friends have the uh, dubious uh, honor of being right at the beginning of the diaspora. But why is that significant to you or to me? After all, we are uh, Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ. We are in the church and not in national Israel. We're not in diaspora, are we? Well, according to the New Testament, it turns out we are. The apostles of Jesus Christ talk about the church of Jesus Christ, and when they talk about it, when they talk about us, guess which term comes up? This is after national Israel has been brought back to the land. They're going to be run out of it again in just a few years. But they're all living in Israel, and people who call themselves Jews are in the promised land. But God's people, the real Israel, the true people of God, are they uh, out of diaspora? Well, it turns out, no. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to you and me. He writes to uh, the Christian church, and he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And guess what the term scattered abroad is? It's diaspora. James writes to Christ's people. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about belonging to Christ. But he begins the book by saying, you're the twelve tribes of God, you're God's people, And you are in diaspora. You are scattered among the pagans. Every day you wake up, you wake up in a world where you are uh, foreigners in somebody else's culture and land. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren. What does the Apostle Peter say when he writes to the Christians who are in um, eastern Turkey? Well, he begins first Peter this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So he's writing very definitely to Christians. They are called to the blood of Jesus Christ, but they are the pilgrims of the dispersion. And guess which Greek word is under the word dispersion? It's diaspora. You're, you're, you're all scattered through Turkey and Asia, uh, but you're under the blood of Jesus Christ You are pilgrims and sojourners in a culture not your own. Uh, Greetings, you who belong to Christ. And in case you had missed it, when we get to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11 and 12, Peter uh, goes back over that theme. He says this uh, in verse 11 and 12. Beloved... I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, 
that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, after having called us the diaspora, Peter returns to the concept and says, you know what happens when you get up in the morning? You get up in somebody else's world, basically. The culture around you is not the culture of Christ. It is not a sanctified culture. You are a pilgrim in somebody else's world. You are a sojourner in that world. You are a stranger and alien in that world. You are the diaspora. God has scattered you among the nations. You are not living in a border protected by a a king on earth that sees to it that the culture is godly and that your access to the temple is guaranteed and that the sacraments and morals of the kingdom are upheld. You are scattered in the world as diaspora, you who are followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a diaspora? It means that you live in a pagan culture and you can't leave. Let that sink in for just a second. Have you ever felt this is not my home I'm just a passing through. I don't really belong here. And you know, today I have decided I don't like this arrangement, uh, and I want to. I want to stop. I want to stop the culture and just get out and go somewhere else because I don't want to live here. Have you ever felt that? Well, I think we all have, and it's because we are in diaspora. This world is not our home. We are just a passing through. We are scattered in the pagan world. It is not the culture of Jesus Christ. And we wake up in it every morning. We are strangers, sojourners, pilgrims. We are living in pagan America, pagan earth. And we can't leave. We are diaspora. The Apostle Paul used a similar concept in uh, writing to the Philippians The Philippians were in a city that legally was considered a district of Rome. When you entered into Philippi, legally you had entered into the city of Rome, but Philippi wasn't in Italy. It was smack dab in the middle of Greece. And the reason why it was considered a part of Rome is because Rome had designated it to be a place where If you were kind of in the in crowd in Rome, but you got in political trouble and you had to get exiled, they would kick you across to Greece and you'd have to go live in Philippi, but you would still be Roman and you'd technically be a citizen of Rome, technically in Rome, but you would be surrounded by Greece. And you'd sit there until the powers that be in Rome wanted you back, but you were still part of the in club, so you got to be a Roman in Philippi. Well, in the third chapter of Philippians, Paul uses a term for the Christian church at Philippi playing off their situation. Some translations translate it up, some kind of hide it, but he uses the term, you're a resident alien. Just like the, the Philippians were used to being in the middle of Greece, but not really being Greek, the Christians were in the middle of the world, but not really belonging to the world, 
they were citizens of a kingdom they weren't currently in in the way they're going to be in it, and it's kind of uncomfortable. You're a resident alien. You are in diaspora. And Daniel, for the second major theme of the book, is exactly how do you live when that's the case? Because that is where we are. So we see Daniel and the young men, they are nobles, they're, they're people from the, the, the better houses. They're related to the, the royal family. Daniel could theoretically be part of David's household. We don't know, but, but he was from kind of the upper crust. Um, they've been brought to Babylon and the Babylonians are going to integrate them into their culture, and they can't leave. What major uh, details do we notice here that should be significant? Well, the first is, Daniel doesn't present the Babylonians in dealing with himself as intentionally being hostile. They're not. The, the exile has begun. There's going to be more and more waves of exile. It's a matter of warfare. But Daniel and his buddies have been brought to Babylon, and they've been brought to fit in, and the Babylonians are not specifically trying to treat them badly. In fact, from their own point of view, the Babylonians are actually treating them very nicely. You are hostages. You've been brought to Babylon but we want you to fit into our world, and we're going to bring you into a very nice place. We're going to give you a place to serve in pagan Babylon where you will be kind of in the honor group. You will be treated well. So we're not hostile to you at all. All we want from you, saints of God, because that's who they are. These are, these are people who are in the visible Church of Christ. They are people who belong to the kingdom. Uh, they're saints by calling, to use our, our uh, confessions language. Babylon just wants them to fit in. That's, that's all they want. You come, you find the place we've assigned you. We're not hostile to you. It's just you gotta fit in. And we're gonna design you to fit in, and we're being nice to you. We don't see ourselves as being hostile to you in any way. The pagan world is a pressure mold. It is designed to take men and shape and mold them and squeeze them into a pattern that that world acknowledges and understands and can use. In the, the book of Romans, when you get to the point where the, the last third of the book begins, and Paul starts talking about do this and don't do that, it becomes the ethical part of the book, Paul begins that section writing this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God. I, I, I beseech you, brethren, because I've taught you about the grace of God. God has been gracious to you. Uh, we have spent uh, nine solid chapters looking at the grace of God, Jesus Christ. Now that you know how gracious God is to you, 
submit your bodies as a sacrifice to Christ, obey him, this is holy and acceptable, which is only your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So don't be transformed by the world, be, be transformed by God, let God transform your spirit, but don't let the world transform you. J.B. Phillips, in paraphrasing this passage, brings out specifically what Paul is saying, and it's very picturesque. The way he paraphrases it, admittedly, but the way he puts it is, With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. There's a mold to push you into it. I'm betting you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just came from basic training. Well, the world is kind of like that. The world squeezes people into a, a mold that it desires, and the Babylonians aren't being to be hostile. They just want the saints to fit in. They don't know they're being hostile. The truth is, they're being very hostile. Because the saints of God, by calling, the people who belong to the Lord Christ, can't take that mold. They cannot allow the world to shape and mold them. You see... Pagan culture, that is non-Christian culture, any non-Christian culture, is inherently defiling. We read that Daniel, of the four of them, decides that he is not going to be defiled by the food that he has been assigned. And uh, commentators at that point ask the question, why is it defiling? Because technically, in this chapter, uh, Daniel doesn't write why it's defiling, he just says it is, and I'm not going to do it. And so, the way we Christians work, where, where the Bible speaks, we speak, and where the Bible is silent, we hypothesize endlessly, uh, we, we want to know why it's defiling. And, and various uh, theories have been put forward, very, very likely theories, it's, it's a very popular and well-known fact that the sacramental aspects of the Mosaic Covenant had a lot to do with food. Likely the food the Babylonians were serving broke the kosher sacraments. That's probably it, but Daniel doesn't say it. Uh, some have said, no, no, that, it's not mentioned that way here, so it's probably not that. Rather, it's probably, this is the king's food, and the king's food is going to have been offered to idols before it's offered to king. That's just the way things work. Well, that would be inherently defiling, and sure, it would. That may be what Daniel's thinking about, but again, he doesn't say it. 
And some of you put forward that there's an emphasis on the fact that the king's food is delicacies, or the way some translations put it, it's dainties. And what it is is it's just way too tasty. That as a follower of God, you're supposed to, you know, not eat good tasting food, I guess. So, I don't know. But, but if you're Ellen White, that's what you believe. Um, it doesn't say that. It puts forward that it is delicacies three times because Daniel wants you to know this is very tempting. It's perfectly okay to eat savory food if it's uh, within God's will. But this is not in God's will, and it's very tempting. And everybody normal would say, yeah, pass me a fork. But for whatever reason, it is defiling. And I think the reason why Daniel has left it kind of nebulous is because Daniel wants us to realize pagan culture is inherently defiling no matter what. Non-Christian culture is culture separated from Jesus the King. Culture is about the king of the country. Culture flows out of the throne. And if you have a culture that is divorced from Jesus the Lord, can it not be inherently corrupting? Can it accidentally be righteous? Well, I think Daniel would tell you no. If it's a non-Christian culture, it's inherently polluting, inherently corrupting. And there were four men among the visible church of Christ that had been brought to Babylon who had a conscience and said, we're not going to do this. Although it didn't start as four, it started as one. We have four young men mentioned, and they're going to be significant in the book, but one of them has to start a process and say, as God's servant, I am not going to fit in. As God's servant, I'm not going to allow the king of Babylon to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. I am going to rebel against pagan culture that I might be a servant of the Lord God. The Bible does not call us to anarchy. But the Bible does call us to hierarchy. There are kings, and the Bible calls us to submit to them. And as we go through Daniel, we're going to see Daniel be very reverent to Nebuchadnezzar who is not a good guy, he's actually a very pagan guy, although God is going to break him down and conquer him. But Daniel is going to be very deferential to him in the way that he deals with him. That's not only practical, that's actually what God calls us to do. But Nebuchadnezzar is not the king of kings. He's not the lord of lords. That belongs to God alone. And Daniel is called to make a decision, will I live according to God's will, or will I live according to culture's will? And Daniel clearly says, I won't live according to culture, I will live according to God, and he is commended here. He is a rebel to man so that he may be a subject of God. And he begins 
by setting his heart, to quote the passage, I'm not going to do this. He doesn't set his heart after talking to the other three guys, although obviously he does because they all come together. He sets his heart, I'm not going to do it. It is God's will that I not do it. And I'm not going to do it. Before the fight begins, before I am standing before my accusers, before the pressure is brought down on me, I have decided I am going to serve God. It is not easy to buck culture. Now, uh, we're a congregation of people who are uh, type A personalities and tend to be introverted, which means almost every last one of us is the kind of person that somebody says, oh, they kept to themselves and they were intense. I knew they were going to be on the news someday. We have a tendency to buck culture a little bit more than the average person. But even we know the absolute pressure that culture will bring to bear. It will bring political power, it will bring cultural power, it will bring economic power, it will bring to bear every tool in its arsenal to conform you to it. And it doesn't think it's being hostile. It thinks it's just making you fit in. And why don't you fit in? Because people fit in. If you're going to stand up to that, you're going to have to decide in your heart, by the grace of God, God is going to have to give you this, but you are, before you go into the pressure, going to have to decide, no matter what happens at the end of this day, I'm not going to make culture king of kings. I am not going to make culture lord of lords. God is king of kings. God is Lord of Lords, and the one thing that's not going to happen at the end of this day is I'm not going to submit to them if it means not submitting to God. And that's where we find Daniel. Line in the sand, it's not going to happen. Make no mistake, he is a rebel to the king at this point. But he is faithful to the king of kings. And the action of one man brings three more men into faithfulness. But it doesn't bring all of them into faithfulness. And they are all part of the visible church. They are all visibly in the covenant. I don't know how many there are, but one gets the impression there's a great deal more than four. And they have lived all their lives in the renewal that was going on under King Josiah. They have been born, likely, into a time where Josiah's reform was was going big guns, and all around them there had been visible religion, and uh, they were considered part of the visible community. So... When only four people are faithful here, what's happening? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. In in Reformed theology, we talk about the visible and the invisible church, and it's very wise to do that. The church has really two aspects. There, There is a church that you can see with your eyes, 
And that consists of everybody who shows up on a Sunday morning. Everybody who's on the roll of the church, everybody who has signed on the dotted line, everybody who is visibly in the church, that's the church, it really is. But is that the truest church? Is that the real church? When the visible church assembles, is everybody who sits in the pew a born-again person? Probably not, but with the eye, you can't tell the difference. Until real pressure comes. Until real pressure comes, it's easy to be faithful. Until pressure comes, nobody here but us followers of Jesus. But let culture begin to press you into its mold. Let outside factors try to help you because you don't understand. Let let the Babylonian king bring his pressure to bear. And that's when the invisible church stops being quite so invisible. When the pressure comes, you actually see who's real. And that's what's happening. Daniel and his three friends are real. Everybody else is handed a plate of dainty food and told, you go live well in Babylon. And they go, yeah, that sounds good. And there's no pressure on them because they fit in. But they are not what is being put forward to us. Daniel and his free friends are what's being put towards us, and they have a much more difficult road to hoe. Now, if you are going to rebel against the pagan culture, that doesn't mean that you need to see the pagans as your enemy. If you see what happens here, Daniel uh, sets in his heart, he's going to be faithful, and he turns to the steward, who is absolutely a Babylonian pagan, and the Bible tells us very clearly, God in his providence has made Daniel and the pagan head of the, the eunuchs buddies. Actually, in the Hebrew, it literally says they have entered into Hesed together, which is a pretty powerful word. They have really hit it off, they have become friends, and this eunuch is no believer. Daniel addresses him civilly and friendly. Uh, You know, he he doesn't treat him as a non-human. He treats him very much as a fellow human and a good friend. He has to work with the pagans, and they are not actually the enemy. Who is behind non-Christian culture? Well, the Apostle Paul will tell you who's behind non-Christian culture. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, he'll say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spirits and principalities and powers. He's using language about evil spirits, and he's not using hyperbole. There are more spirits in the world than the Holy Spirit. And they're out there, and they're using pagan people, but the pagan people aren't your enemy. And Daniel turns to this man to seek help, and providence has put him on Daniel's side. He is not utterly depraved, he's totally depraved, he's not utterly depraved, and he would like to help. But he doesn't help, even though providence has turned his heart, he's too afraid to help. And so Daniel, who has set his heart, and his three friends who have been motivated, 
immediately stop the rebellion against the world and say, well, that didn't work, and they go ahead and eat the dainty food, right? That's not what happens. If you read closely, Daniel appeals to his friend and says, I I don't want to do this. His friend says, I'd love to help, but I'd lose my head. Who does Daniel then turn to? It is the guy who is under the head eunuch, not the head eunuch. Daniel has been told no by the world, you're going to fit in, and Daniel doesn't take no for an answer because Daniel is faithful. He has set his heart to serve God rather than men, and he goes under the eunuch's head, not over it. We talk about going over the head of our boss, that sort of thing. Daniel literally goes under the head of his boss. He goes to the guy under him, and having been told no, which means he is now acting against him, turns to his subordinate and says, would you help me? And the subordinate says, well, all right. So he has effectively gone to the lesser magistrate and sought help from him. Does the term sound familiar? That's what's happening. Again, Daniel is treating the Babylonians as humans. He, he is not treating them as their things, but, but he is being faithful, and he is doing what he has to do to be faithful, and providence is helping him. All underneath this passage, God is at work. God is turning the hearts of the Babylonians to Daniel and his friends. This is not a work of their flesh. It is not a work of their brilliance. It is God moving behind the scenes. And uh, Daniel works out his deal. And it turns out, if you do things God's way, things work out better than if you don't even though it does not look like that would be the case. Why does God give his laws? What are they designed to do? In scripture, we're told God's laws are designed to set us apart from the world and make us look different because we are different. We're citizens of another kingdom. The laws of God set us apart. But Is that all that's happening? That's really all that's mentioned, but is that all that's happening? Three times in Moses' law, there is a command, and it's, it's this verbatim all three times. Thou shalt not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Now, you know that uh, space on the scrolls at a premium... And Moses' law has 604 laws in it. And this one gets repeated three times in three different places. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, why? And why would you say it three times? Well, if you look for the reasons that Moses gives in in two of the three places, it is uh, you are to be a set-apart people, you do things differently, And that's what pagans did. They boiled the young goat in their mother's milk. That was kind of par for the course. But even though God didn't mention it, it turns out that when you boil a young goat in its mother's milk, in in the milk of its own mother, it turns out, just strangely, that that makes the meat mildly poisonous. Now, God didn't say anything about that. 
He said, obey me because you're a peculiar people. Obey me because you belong to me and you belong to the world. He didn't say a word about, oh, by the way, you won't poison yourself. But it turns out God loves his people. It turns out God gives his commands, and even when those commands don't at first make a lot of sense, or even when they seem to put us at odds with the world, God does know what he's doing, and God's commands are for our good. They are for our health. They are for our benefit. He just doesn't mention that because covenantally, that's not the major issue. But God actually loves us, and Daniel takes the hard row. He, he rebels against culture. He stands against direct orders. He does it God's way, and it turns out the hand of God's providence is such that it works out better for him. Even the pagans who did not believe this is the way things were going to work out have to admit in a very practical way when we see you doing what your God called you to do, it seems to be better. We did not think so, but it is. And so we see faithfulness rewarded by God in natural law. We see faithfulness rewarded by God in providence And we see God rewarding faithfulness with even further blessings than those. Daniel and his buddies obey God. And we read next that God, to these men in particular, Daniel emphasizes, gave spiritual gifts, not to the others. God blessed them with being faithful And then he blessed their faithfulness with further blessing. And so they are growing in in God's sanctification where the others are not. And at the end of the chapter, we read that Nebuchadnezzar interviewed everybody. But who in the providence of God ends up standing in his court? Is it all the young men? Read it closely. They have decided to do things the Babylonian way. They belong to God, but hey, you know, practicality is practicality. We're going to go along with the culture. We're going to give in. Who ends up in the positions of authority? It's not them. It is the four young men who followed God and said no to culture and had to break the rules to keep the law. They are blessed with the positions. They will be there, at least Daniel will, to quote the first year of King Cyrus, which is about 72 years. So that's a long time. Um, God blessed them so that they could become advisors to the pagans. God wants his children, he wants his church, he wants those who are converted to be advising the pagans. He doesn't want his children being advised by the pagans. And that is exactly what happens when we compromise and we give in. When we do things where the world says do it this way and God says no, do it that way, and we say, you know, we've got to live in the world. We've got to, we've got to make some compromises here. God didn't bless that. God doesn't bless it. The pagans don't acknowledge it. 
In fact, the truth is, the pagans mock it. About ten years ago, before Richard Dawkins fell out of favor for being pro-cannibal, I kid you not, that's actually how he got in trouble. He, he had to admit that as an atheist he couldn't find any ethical reason why cannibalism would be bad, and surprisingly, the news camera stopped following him. But before that happened, I was watching an interview by Richard Dawkins, and as you know, his claim to fame is he's rabidly pro-evolution, that, that's what he loves, you know. And he was talking about us in the interview. And the interviewer said something to you along the lines of, can you believe that there's still Christians out there who believe that God created the world in 6,000 years? And surprisingly, Richard Dawkins said, you know, I can And when I deal with Christians, those are actually the Christians I respect. And the the interviewer was kind of floored. And he repeated his question, just make sure that Dawkins had gotten it. And Dawkins said, no, no, I want you to understand, when I deal with those kind of Christians, they have read their Bibles, and they know what it says. And they have made a commitment that they're going to believe it. Now, you and I know it's nonsense. You and I know that the world is is not 6,000 years old and that no God made it, but they have made a commitment that they will believe this book, and they do. The people I do not respect, the people who I consider to be lowest of the low, are those Christians who want to claim to be Christians but believe in evolution. Those are the people I cannot understand, and I have no respect for them, because their book clearly does not say that. But they want to fit in. I mock them. You know, I kind of understand that. I really can. If the world's going to listen to the followers of Jesus Christ, they're going to listen to people who are not compromising, who will love the world and will make friends with Babylonians but who will set in their heart, I am going to do it God's way, and if I have to be a rebel against man, so be it, I will be a servant of God. God blesses a church like that. God blesses believers like that. Because the king of kings does not sit in Babylon... The king of kings does not sit at Rome. The king of kings does not convene the Congress. The king of kings and lord of lords is God Almighty. Him alone must we serve. Him alone must we worship. Not man, though we must honor the king. I think it is understatement that watching Daniel and his friends live in Diaspora may be of intense interest to us as we go further.